0: Hey listeners, thanks so much for tuning in again today. The episode today is going to be a wrap up of this month's series on suicide prevention and will feature a clinician who is using the Ask Suicide Screening Question or the ASQ in real life. So tune in and see if you can find some tips that will help you as you think about doing this in your practices. Dustin Bogan is a board-certified pediatric physician assistant and a fellow of the American Academy of Physician Assistants, the Virginia Academy of Physician Assistants, and the Society for Physician Assistants in Pediatrics. After growing up in rural Virginia, he attended Shenandoah University in order to obtain his bachelor's degree in biology. He minored in psychology and then got his master's degree as a physician assistant and after graduation, was fortunate to begin working immediately in primary care pediatrics. He was at pediatric and still is pediatric and adolescent health partners and strives to combine his personal background, medical knowledge and passion for mental health in his career. He now serves as a care coordinator and facilitates the trauma-informed leadership team in his practice. He also serves as an adjunct professor at South University, where he educates students on pediatrics and topics related to mental health. Please join me in welcoming Dustin Bogan. Hi, Dustin. How are you?
1: Doing well. How are you?
0: Great. Thank you so much for joining me. I know you're a busy guy in a busy practice, so I appreciate you making special time to do this.
1: Absolutely. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and to talk to you about you know mental health and the importance of it.
0: We all see a lot of it for sure. And how did you first get started in, in pediatrics? I know you're a physician's assistant. How What was your journey like?
1: So this is always a pretty interesting question to me because I actually grew up in a very rural part of Virginia and did not even have access to a pediatrician. And so most of my immunizations, my exposure to healthcare, so to speak, was through, you know, the health department and kind of, you know, as needed to get into school and to, you know, function. So I think that I was unfortunate and fortunate because, you know, I grew up around so much need and so much adversity. And so I think it really highlighted the struggles that families go through, you know, financial struggles, emotional issues, you know, physical struggles and health issues. Um, And so I was lucky enough to have a huge support system. My grandparents, my parents, extended family, but it was pretty clear to me, the people I knew, not everyone had that. And so I chose to in some way go into a helping profession. And as I was in college, I discovered, you know, physician assistant and the flexibility and the kind of collaborative approach that they take. And so to me, it just sounded like a perfect fit. Throughout my you know clinical training, I was like, I really think I want to go into you know pediatrics because there's this you know long term follow through and you get to know families, um, and so I was lucky enough to you know get a rotation at the practice where I now work, as you know PAs do this whole clinical year in their training, and so we finished out the year you know with what we desire to work in, and so I had previously done an elective in psychiatry, and I was like, well, you know, let me. See if I can get you know into pediatrics, and so I was lucky to get this last rotation at Pediatric and Adolescent Health Partners, and you know met one of their founding physicians, um, Dr. Abernathy, that was, you know, this kind of champion for families really, and really stood behind them, and you know wanted to support them, and you know that spoke to me and my passion, and I was like, well you know, I can't really see myself working anywhere else at this point. So I applied and right before graduating and really just didn't want to take no for an answer and begged them to let me stay. And luckily I was able to. So I think I ended up in the right place.
0: Now, is this a rural setting where you are now?
1: So I would say suburban. So we have three offices, one closer to, you know, downtown Richmond, which is, of course, the capital of Virginia. So a little busier here that way. We have one office in Midlothian, which is kind of this, you know, suburb kind of outskirts. And then we do have one in Powhatan, which is the most rural area here. It's really interesting from the three offices to see, you know, kind of the span of the patient population that we have.
0: Well, and I think some of us that are affiliated with with big centers, which I, I know more and more physicians and extenders are, you know, employed by big systems. So being in private practice is a really different perspective. And then your background in a rural America, I think it brings a whole nother piece that a lot of us don't always think about. And the poverty and lack of access. I know the American Academy of Pediatrics just came out with a map of distance from people to subspecialists, and our Upper Peninsula for almost every subspecialty, it's over a hundred miles, and for psychiatry, it's way more than that. And so, I, I think we sometimes forget about rural America and and the needs there, which sound, from what you're describing, are, are pretty significant.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I know, you know this, but at least the last number I saw, there were just over 8,000 child psychiatrists in the whole country. And so you think about that, and then you think about these underserved areas, they aren't going to be the ones that get that access. It's going to be, you know, hey, we need that in Cleveland. Hey, we need that in New York. Hey, we need that here. So that's going to draw those, those individuals in. So, you know, as primary care clinicians, we kind of fill in the gap.
0: Sure. And I think for some psychiatrists, doing private practice is a really difficult thing. So a lot of times they practice fee-for-service, which, you know, some people just can't afford that. So yeah, it's definitely a workforce issue. What about in your practice? I mean, what kind of impact do you see on, you know, mental health, depression, suicidal ideation? I mean, is that something that you see frequently?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, of course, that's been exacerbated over the last year, but mental health in general is a huge piece of primary care. One of you know, my mentors initially even said, you know, no matter where you practice, no matter what specialty, you're going to see mental health. And so I would say, you know, I'm seeing two or three consults you know or more per day um, in regards to depression anxiety mental health and then i would say you know three to four of those throughout the week will even have suicidal ideation and it sounds like by speaking to the fellow providers at my practice that range is between two and six people that they're talking to about suicide on a weekly basis and you know really you know considering the smaller amount of numbers that we're seeing with covid that's pretty significant Um, And then unfortunately, I know that we did lose one individual to suicide over the last year, at least that I know of. And so, you know, those small numbers still lead to, you know, large, unfortunate outcomes. And so it makes it hard.
0: Right. And one is too many, right? Because it feels like that should be preventable. If, if we can, if we know, of course, and if we can get to them and find resources. And I think we have to hope that that's the case. Do you have you seen an uptick during COVID? Do you think I know anecdotally, there's some increases across the country, but do you see that in your own practice?
1: Absolutely. So I know that, you know, when we initially started doing suicide screening, we were looking at maybe, you know, 12% of our patient population had suicidal ideation. And with COVID that's increased, you know, up to about 16, 17% based on the numbers that we did recently. And so again, you know, just trending based on current circumstances. So it makes it hard. Yeah,
0: and I, th- I think that sounds about right for us. I think at one point, Typically, I think we trend right around 15% using the PHQ screener would answer yes to question number nine. And I, at one point, I want to say in May or June, it was up to 23%. So, you know, that's a that's a lot of kids. That's a lot wow. of kids. So why did your practice decide to start doing this more generalized screening? Because that was a change for you guys, right?
1: Definitely. So looking back, I think that, you know, our practice as a whole, and then myself, we were actually pretty fortunate in how we came to do what we do now. Dr. Abernathy was one of our, you know, kind of core physicians that helped found our practice. And, you know, back in 2016, which was the same year that I was to graduate, and I was spending time there as a um, physician assistant student, he had attended this conference with Dr. Horowitz presenting about this, you know, Ask Suicide Questions, you know, screening questionnaire. And she was talking initially about the emergency department, but he realized, hey, like this is a huge need, you know, for what we do and in, you know, pediatric primary care. And so um, he reached out to Dr. Horowitz and they actually opted to do a research study in our own practice. And that's where, you know, we realized that, that, you know, 12% of our patients were having suicidal ideation, you know, that we had no idea about, you know, at least not prior to that. And as I said, you know, we've seen those numbers, you know, continue to rise. And so I'm very thankful that I was there at that onset. And I know that, you know, depression was a big, you know, research, you know, piece for me, finishing out my education. And so we tried to combine that and really kind of champion. For our patients to implement these screening tools and hopefully make a difference.
0: See, and this is where I hear this story. I mean, since I've started doing this podcast over and over and over again, that one physician, one provider who has an idea and a passion can make something happen. So here you have Dr. Abernathy here's a you know a conference. And so many of us go to conferences, we get all excited, and then we come back and, you know, life goes back to the way it was. But to say, we're going to do something different. And then to have an NIMH researcher say, yeah, we want to make your practice a pilot. I mean, here you are in Virginia, right? You never would have been on the map. Right. And you make something happen. I can think of several barriers or questions that you know, other providers, other listeners are going to have. One being, are parents upset about it? Two, is there a workforce issue in terms of your flow? And three, are the nurses and your staff going to balk at doing it? So what was it like as far as, you know, those are three big, big barriers to overcome.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's so easy for us as clinicians to say we have so much to do, you know, why is this, you know, you know, be this priority? Why do we need to make this big change? And Um, You know, one thing that immediately stands out to me is, you know, during that, or shortly after that initial study, we had just started to implement these suicide screens and depression screens in our patients 12 and over just for physicals. Um, And one of the nurses had this patient that she was about to work up that was coming in for leg pain. So nothing, you know, out of the ordinary for us, but she realized over the last year he kept coming in for headaches and leg pain and arm pain and back pain. And she was like, this just really, you know, feels funny to me. And so she went ahead and gave him the screen, you know, the ass screen. And not only did he answer that he was having suicidal ideation, but he actually had a plan to die by hanging the very next day. Um, and had it all planned out, his parents were leaving and, you know, it, it hit everybody and of course um you know kind of really hit home that we needed to do this and thankfully we were able to you know intervene and you know he was taken to emergency room and got some mental health services there and that time and time again, just gets reinforced. We've had, you know, a 17 year old girl who crumpled up the screen behind her back at the physical and hoped nobody would see it. And then, you know, one of the nurse practitioners noticed it and asked for it and realized that, you know, very same thing. She was, had this plan in place and we see younger kids, you know, even under the our typical screen, nine and 10-year-olds who have, you know, abuse histories or who are in foster care or other traumas and they are having these thoughts of dying at such a young age. And so it just kind of constantly hits home to us as clinicians. And so thankfully, you know, we were able to see the importance of it and keep it going.
0: So you were able to sell it to your staff because the staff actually took the Kind of the onus to use it and had the insight to say something's not right here.
1: Fresh in our minds and, you know, really, you know, perfect storm. And unfortunate again, like we hate for anybody to feel this way, but also like it really illuminated why we need to pay attention to it.
0: So, and for listeners who didn't hear the podcast right before this one, I interviewed Dr. Lisa Horowitz about the Ask Screener. So it's a little bit different than the PHQ9, um, the concerns being the PHQ9, which does ask a question about thoughts of hurting yourself, but not specifically thoughts of killing yourself. So this Ask Screener is five questions and it's very pointed questions, right? Yes, yeah, um,
1: direct and to the point. And it's like, you know, are you thinking of it right now? Um, it really, you know, kind of, Puts it in their, you know, clear, you know, wording so that, that way they know how to answer.
0: Were you using the PHQ-9 before you started using the Ask Screener?
1: So um, we were familiar with it, and actually we still, you know, use it here and there, whether it be for consults or for follow-ups to our initial screens. Um, and so we used that, but we found that you know the Ask questionnaire was just, as you said, more pointed, um, and it really got more kind of return and more, you know. Truthful responses. So we decided to incorporate that.
0: How did parents react to it? Because I think there's a fear that we're, you know, I know in the emergency room study that they did, the nurses asked the question of the parents and would ask the parents to, well, ask the kid, would ask the parents to step out and ask the child alone. And these were kids 10 and up. And that there was some pushback, but it was small after it was explained why you were doing it. What's your experience with parents been like?
1: So pretty similar. Um, We've had, you know, some, you know, pretty firm pushback to say, you know, hey, we're putting this idea in our kids' heads We're making them think about something that they've never thought about before. Or most interestingly, we had a parent that thought that the fact that we were screening her child for suicide would impact her ability to get into college. (laughs) Um, And which, of course, we know isn't true. Um, But overall, um, you know, most of our parents were receptive to it, and they thought it was, important to screen and you know they thought that you know pediatric primary care is the place to do it because you're there so often and you have this trusted relationship and so parents kind of rely on us to bring out issues and to find things that they might not be looking for Um, and thankfully most of them know that their children are unfortunately exposed to suicide through you know social media or at their own school or on television shows and so the thoughts are there. We're just normalizing it and discussing it and hopefully giving them options and alternatives to dying by suicide.
0: Yeah. And I guess the parent that was concerned about her daughter going to college, I mean, of course, had there been a suicide, you know, that would be a moot point. How young do you guys screen? We
1: routinely screen ages 12 and up at their physicals. And so just their annual well visits. Um, But the nurses have been trained and, you know, receptionists have been trained that if they get that feel and they're, you know, they kind of think that they need to incorporate the screen, we've screened as young as eight. And we've talked about things in even younger kids, because unfortunately, I know in our area, there was a, you know, five-year-old that attempted suicide. Um, uh, thankfully not from our practice, but, you know, it's one of those things that gets pointed out at conferences and you don't think of someone that young wanting to die, let alone having the, you know, planning to try.
0: And I Um, know in the emergency rooms, in those places that have adopted it, I think they're screening everybody that comes to the emergency room. Now, again, it's a little bit different population, but they do find a percentage of the kids that are coming in for medical concerns that do have suicidal ideation. I think some emergency rooms, you know, are only doing them if they're specifically coming in for a psychiatric or depression or an attempt or something, but you know, they're, they're going to miss some of those. So I'm wondering, like in our practice, we've been using the PHQ nine and I think that there's room to add the ask And I know Dr. Horowitz had talked about sort of adding that, you know, sort of the PHQ-9 plus ASQ as a routine screener because the PHQ will also pick up depression. Mm -hmm. And you can be depressed without suicidal ideation and you can have suicidal ideation without depression. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm wondering about that group of kids that, you know, do we need to do more routine? Like I usually do a screen on all the kids that are coming in for any kind of like med check, if they have anxiety, depression, ADHD for that type. But I'm wondering about those group of kids that have chronic headaches, chronic abdominal pain, multiple injuries. Have you guys thought about that population and how to screen so that we're not relying on the, well, maybe, you know what I mean? So that's just sort of more of a a routine process.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, research has proven that our kids who come in with these, you know, chronic abdominal pain and, you know, then our adolescents that come in for chronic headaches, you know, most of them do either have a history of trauma or do have an underlying mental health um, disorder. And so it's it's constantly in our mind, and we have meetings um, bi monthly currently to discuss what we currently do, um, and that is one of the things that comes up from time to time, and we haven't implemented a standard yet, but we're constantly, you know, talking to receptionists and nurses and parents and trying to get a feel for what should we change and what do we feel like is needed at this time. So I think that depending on your practice and depending on what you see, it could, it could be huge and you could catch a lot of kids that
0: way. I think certainly a fear for our practice was, you know, somebody comes in for say a sinus infection and we routinely give the screen, what am I supposed to do if it comes back positive? And I've got a 10 minute appointment for that. On the other hand, if you did pick it up, that's kind of a big thing. Um, and gee, it would be awful if we miss that. So it's kind of a double-edged thing. And how do you deal with the the positives? Because I think that's the other is if I ask and it's, you know, 17% or 15%, whatever, what's my day going to look like if that happens? How am I going to manage that? How has that worked for you? So,
1: it definitely, you know, I would never say that it doesn't make an impact or, you know, that it's easy to do. Um, But as you said, it all goes back to, you know, our initial motivation. It's not even really about those kids that admit that they have suicidal ideation, it's about the kids that maybe would not have if you hadn't brought it up. So, we have this opportunity to help and, you know, to really make a difference. And so, in our practice, um, we at one time were blessed with social work interns and they helped out a lot with this. But currently, um, our receptionist actually hand out a paper form um, that includes the PHQ too, and then the Ask Suicide Questions questionnaire as well. And then the nurse collects that and quickly reviews it to see um, if there is suicidal ideation and then can verbally ask as well. And so if that particular patient is um, actively suicidal or has suicidal ideation, we chose to make that our priority. And so if they were there for a well visit, we hold off on the well visit and we save that for later. And we talk about how, you know, this person's feeling like they might want to end their life. And that's the most important thing. There's no need for an annual physical if they're not going to be here next year. And so um, we kind of just, you know, take the opportunity to catch those kids in the moment and, you know, then providers are able to focus on that. And so it still takes time and it still hits us hard when it happens, but at the same time, it's much more efficient than if it's, you know, that oh by the way, at the end of the visit, or, you know, that thing that we catch as they're getting ready to walk out the door and we're like, Oh wait, don't leave. <laughs> um, and so we've, Got a fairly smooth process down that's been helpful.
0: I think that's key having a process. I remember one time I did the PHQ 9 and I just didn't see it. A lot of times my staff would say, Hey, Leah, you know, look here, you know, this is positive. Um, and I missed it and they had left and it was positive. So I ended up calling the mom and and really doing a screen over the phone and felt like she was in a safe place, but it kind of freaked me out. I mean, it happens, right? You just don't catch everything. But I I think there's something to be said for. And I know part of the ask brief suicide screen assessment that you do after you get a positive is to praise the patient and to thank them for sharing. And I think if somehow we can start internalizing that to I'm so grateful that they told me as opposed to, oh my God, now what do I do? So how did you prepare yourselves for what to do about these positives? You said you have a smooth process. What's that look like for you?
1: so we actually um you know through this um what we call our trauma-informed leadership team we took the initiative to make sure that everybody had some form of training and so providers were able to go to cme conferences that incorporated um, suicide screening or you know we brought in um, from the trauma-informed community network we brought in training about adversity and trauma and how to talk to people about mental health and you know really be straightforward with that and we took a combination of resources from the aap and from the national institute of mental health about the ask suicide training um, questionnaire and we made sure that everybody had those in hand and we talked about them with everyone and so you know if one person wasn't comfortable the person right next to them could fill in the gaps and you know we really just made it a commitment to work as a team and make sure that we all had some form of training. Um, And we had resources in our back pocket to be able to give to patients if they needed it. And we knew where our ERs were that handled mental health. And we knew which offices could get people in quickly. And so we just, we kind of worked hard and started from grassroots and moved forward.
0: It sounds like a big piece of this, and uh, for those people who are not familiar with the Zero Suicide Framework, there are seven components, Um, lead, identify, treat, engage, improve, and transition, and the one thing that sounds like made a big change for you guys was lead. You all decided this is important to us, and we have a commitment, I heard you use that word to making this happen because we cannot miss a child if we can at all possible catch them. And then you did the train piece, which frankly, I think is huge. I mean, you, you can't ask these questions if you don't know what to do right? You know, and your staff too. I mean, I think, you know, like your, your nurse was so empowered to say, I, I see something here. I know what to do. I'd like to ask. Mm-hmm. And, and so it wasn't just, on the providers. It's the whole practice is taking ownership of, we want to save our kids. Does that, is that true?
1: Absolutely. And I think that, you know, what I love about our practice, and like I said, you know, way back when pediatric and adolescent health partners is in and of itself a family, and we make it a commitment to empower families. And I think that you have to acknowledge and, you know, welcome the skills of everyone that you work with. Um, And you have to let people know that, it's okay if you ask these questions. It's okay if you come to me and say, hey, we need to do this. It's okay if, you know, I ask you to do this. And I think that, you know, that's allowed us to to just do what we do and, you know, make it as less painful as possible.
0: I think that there's going to be a whole lot more things that come out. The American Academy of Pediatrics just had a suicide prevention summit and brought together thought leaders from all over the country And I was fortunate enough to be on a panel to talk about just this, you know, from the grassroots, the primary care, because, you know, a lot of times people talk about doing something and then the primary care people are like, hello, I'm out here. Could you include me? And so to be included, I think, was so important, um, but that there are materials to know how to train because you have to be able to have that. And then one of the other things you mentioned was the mental health resources. And I would agree if there's any way that you can have it in your office, it was a game changer. And I've said this over and over. I do think that there are some creative things and you mentioned social work interns. So if people are near teaching institutions, they might be able to connect with departments of social work, departments of psychology to, to partner up. And then certainly you can hire people or have some kind of partnership in the community. And then having right now where you guys are at, we have partnerships with people out in the community that will see our crisis, you know, patients. Does that sound about right? What your process has been?
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, you said it, you know, as clearly as it can be, it's all about relationships. And, you know, we know that we have inherent skills and abilities and opportunities, but we can't, you know, do it all. We, we need that team. And so, um, we tried to reach out to, you know, the emergency rooms in the area and make sure that we knew what behavioral health access they had for ER as well as otherwise we have um, reached out to, um, you know, local advocacy organizations to bring in trainings to our office. And we reached out to psychiatry offices and invited their practitioners to our provider meetings. And we said, you know, Hey, let's sit down, let's have a conversation and let's see what makes our referral process easier for you? And what, you know, can we do to, you know, make the referral process easiest for our patients? So that way they aren't waiting six months, nine months in a time when they're feeling at their worst. I think it's just about building that, that trust and that community.
0: I love that. It's like, uh, let's get creative and, and see what we can do with the resources that we have. And of course, every community is going to be different. I mean, at minimum, you know, there should be a community mental health organization in a region. Now, again, the more rural you are, the more limited the partnerships. I do think with telehealth that that might be something that can, you know, be helpful to Folks, but I like your idea of like, hey, we reached out and said, can we partner with you? You didn't sit back and wait for that to happen. And we've had those meetings too. Um, We called them community partner meetings. And the therapists that came were so grateful to be invited. And, you know, we taught them about the screens that we're doing. They didn't know anything about a PHQ. And I said, we do this all the time. And if we could share that expertise. And so they learned. And I think the thing that's really nice about you, Dustin, is I feel like if I had if I was a parent and my child came to you, you wouldn't be freaked out if they said, yes, I'm having thoughts of suicide. You would be like calm and okay, let's talk about it. How bad is it? And you know, we have a plan. It might not necessarily be the emergency room. I mean, those imminent cases like you were talking about, in my experience, aren't the ones that you see the most often. The most often are sort of more like, yeah, I thought about it. I'd never do it. Or maybe I would do it. You know, they sort of have a plan. So I think it's our fear that I'm going to not know what to do. So I'd rather not ask. And, And but you kind of convey this. I I need you to tell me, I want you to tell me I'm here to help you. And I know what to do.
1: And I think, you know, not only that, it's amazing. First of all, to hear you say that, because I know, you know, I think about day one doing this, I'm like, Oh no, did I do the right thing Like you go home and you think about it and you're wondering about, you know, that patient and if they're going to come in the next week or whatever it may be. Um, but I do feel like I've built up my own comfort with it. And I feel that, Um, just like any skill. um, I feel like it gets easier the more that we talk about it. And from a patient standpoint, it tells them that there is somebody that they can talk to and they're not going to be judged if they bring this up and they have, you know, options. And if I don't know what to do in that moment, I can give them resources or I can do some digging to hopefully access the resources that I have that they don't to just build up their own, you know, abilities and, you know, help them succeed and, Staying alive at a minimum, but thriving um, at a maximum, and you know, moving forward from this tough time.
0: Well, and it it becomes a routine part of care that we ask this. So, you know, we always ask this. So, if it is true the patients then are comfortable to share or the parents too, to say, I'm really worried about my kid. Is that possible? Because using that language, are you having thoughts of killing yourself is really uncomfortable. And Moss Rogers in um, a couple episodes before this one, her advice to providers was get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I mean, I think about, I've often likened it to a code situation. I mean, a code man, you're heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, you're feeling, you know, the, the fight or flight's kicking in, but what you have is the training and then somebody takes the lead. And if it goes well, you know, the person at the lead is not freaking out. They're calm and they're like, I got this. I know what to do. And so my hope is that, you know, people out there will be empowered and encouraged and perhaps inspired to do this and to convey to patients, I got this, I got you. And there's hope for this and I can help you. This isn't, you don't have to make that choice. There are other things. And, you know, for that young man, what happened with that? What was the outcome
1: So thankfully, like I said, we were able to, you know, at that time, it's very fresh, but we were able to get him to an emergency room and, you know, get him into outpatient therapy and get seen by a psychiatrist and, you know, thankfully, you know, moved on from that. Um, And, you know, as far as I know, he's still doing well. Um, And so, um, and I wanted to point this out because back when we were going through all of this, there was actually a patient um, that, hopefully was trying to reassure us that it's okay to ask these questions um and he himself said you know suicide suicidal thoughts happen at random times and it's better to offend somebody by asking about it rather than not asking about it at all because if they're thinking about suicide they have this mask on um, and you have to ask the question in a way that somehow lets them take that mask off and simply by asking the question We were able to make a difference. And I think anybody has that power.
0: Well, and I think it must be in some ways a relief. I mean, I remember a young woman, she was college age, and she just said, I've never talked about this before. And, you know, I was able to say, you know, this must be hard and be scary, but, you know, let's talk about what some strategies are, you know, and how bad is it? Is it something I need to send you to the emergency room or? Can we come up with some other plan? And I think for her, it just, it was scary for her to have those thoughts and for somebody to normalize it and say, Hey, a lot of people have these thoughts, but, you know, let's talk about how to manage those thoughts. And, you know, you know, and they're totally different levels of care, like with any medical condition, you know, we don't always, it's not always a knee jerk, go to the emergency room.
1: Definitely like you said it's this huge weight that they're carrying around and you can almost see it you know when you make that breakthrough Um, it may take a couple of visits or it may take time but once they finally are ready to admit it whether it's tears or whether it's their shoulders you know relaxing or whether it's just this sigh, you know you can tell that it's something that they've been holding on to and they didn't know how to talk about it or who wanted to know about it Um, And hopefully we can at least take that burden off and let them know that they're not alone.
0: And I do think there's a really great toolkit. One of the things that I think is nice about the ask is it's scripted. Mm -hmm. So the questions are right there. Have you had thoughts about killing yourself? And there's no um, question about what that means. I mean, most, even a young kid would know what that means. um, As opposed to, I think I've mentioned it before um, in other podcasts, but I used to ask, Um, have you ever wished that you weren't here anymore? Well, that's really not clear. <laughs> I mean it's a pretty murky question, like, yeah, I don't want to be in the office. You know it doesn't say what we want to know. Mm-hmm. You know, are you having thoughts of killing yourself? Are you having thoughts about wanting to die? And I think if we can get comfortable with that that it's very clear what we're asking. and mm-hmm. it makes it very clear to the patient, it's okay to tell me this. I know and that scripting I think helps. Um have you found with your staff that they like the scripting?
1: They do. So and I think that everyone has, you know, grown since we initially started doing this and everyone now has their own, you know, style and their own, you know, way to approach these things. But I think that just by having that script and knowing what the important pieces are and how you gauge how serious this is. Like you said, do we need to send this kid to the emergency room? Um, or if we do send them an emergency room, are they just going to get sent back to us the next day? And we're going to have this conversation again. Um, and so it helps you just kind of follow that guide and nothing's perfect by any means for every single situation, but it definitely gives you more tools and it gives you more, comfort and ability to, you know, almost like any kind of risk assessment.
0: And in the show notes, I'll put links to the um, the NIMH toolkit. Um, it's got lots of materials. Uh, Zero Suicide has lots of materials on their website. One of the ones that I really like is the Counseling Access to Lethal Means or the CALM course, which for me was really helpful thinking about how to talk about firearms, because that can be a hot button issue, how to talk about securing medications, because if we're going to send somebody home, we need to ask, do you have firearms in the home, and how to have that conversation. That was a, a great online free course for me that was helpful, so I'll put a link. We also did here in Michigan, we have a A child psychiatry access program called MC3. And we created a little scripted thing about like a kid that comes in for a physical and has suicidal ideation. And just what you were talking about earlier like, okay, now the conversation's not going to be about the physical, but also what's going on in the clinician's head like, oh God, I was hoping I could get out of here and now I'm going to be tied up. And, and it we use those bubbles to kind of convey what people are thinking, and we sort of do an example of, you know, sort of the less than desirable response of the clinician who clearly doesn't want to hear about it, and then sort of a, a better version. It's just a little, I think, a nine-minute video. And then I'll also include the the link to Dr. Abernathy, um, his, uh, his YouTube video about that. Are there any other... Um, information or tools, trainings that you would recommend to people that want to learn about this?
1: I think that the Clinically Integrated Network does a great training on trauma-informed care, and it's not directly related to suicidality, but it talks all about those risk factors and how do we broach these really sensitive topics and how do we praise someone for bringing in this difficult information and how do we also not, you know, make the problem any worse. Um, and so I think that's a huge piece. And then very similar to what you've mentioned, Suicide Prevention Resource Center, they have a you know free training available that kind of breaks it down into modules that are easy to follow. And I think that's been you know something that we can kind of add to our tool bag. And I th- also think it's good just to bring in resources from different people doing the same thing because we can all learn. like That's what we signed up for.
0: (laughs) Well, we don't have to recreate the wheel and come up with our own plan. I mean, it's out there. And I love the idea um, that you came up with in your office about this trauma-informed leadership team. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So that was alongside one of our social work interns. Him and I had talked about how do we build on what we're already doing well? We had started the suicide screening and depression screening and, you know, how do we evaluate our whole practice and are there small changes that we can make? And so we initially started meeting monthly. And then as I mentioned, now we meet every other month um, and we talk about like, what are some of the successes that we've had? What are some of the areas of opportunity that we can improve on? Um, And then also, how do we take care of ourselves and our staff as they're doing these difficult things? And so, you know, whether that's breaks or, you know, music rooms or yoga or, you know, walks outside at lunch, you know, lots of different things that we kind of Um, you know, work is a, you know, collaborative um, to figure out and it incorporates our providers, our nurses, our support staff, receptionists, and administration. And so it's just a couple people from each of those branches and anybody's welcome to come and participate. And I think that it just keeps the conversation going.
0: What a nice way to, you know, build this, you know, team and this kind of Again, that leadership piece about this is important, but any people, you know, anybody from whether it's clerical or clinical or the provider can be part of this team and have leadership in this. And I, I like that empowerment of your staff. That's that's really um, I think that's really nice and very powerful. Well, I so appreciate this and I hope people are inspired to take some steps, maybe they're baby steps. I guess the last question I like to ask my guests is if you could go back and talk to your younger self, either before you were a PA or while you were a PA, what advice would you give that younger you?
1: You know, really right in line with what we've been talking about. I think, you know, just telling myself to really embrace the moment and learn from the present and not take opportunities or experiences for granted, because I feel like all of the things that I've been through have helped me to get to where I am today and to help me be more empathetic and to help me grow. And I think that not only myself, but I think that everybody kind of underappreciates that, you know, soak it all in and remember that any of those experiences are, are useful and valid and help you grow.
0: That's lovely. I I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you and all the work that you and your partners are doing. I mean, it's really important work. Um, The American Academy of Pediatrics does have um, resources for self-care and um, Dr. Middlemist, who's on the wellness advisory group, did a podcast back in January on that. So for any listeners that want to hear some more tips about that self-care, I mean, you mentioned several that sounds like you do with your staff. You know, that's an important thing. And I think especially during COVID, I mean, it's just been so unnerving and everything that can cause people stress, like uncertainty and fear, but also I think some time for self reflection about what's important, what matters you know, we've had a lot of time to be with each other, right?
1: (laughs) There's There's always a silver lining. And, you know, again, I learned so much from everybody. And one of my, you know, parents initially was talking about his daughter and he you know, had been laid off of his job because of COVID, but he was like, honestly, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. He's like, I've gotten to know my daughter on a whole other level. And, you know, they were joking and, you know, she had memorized his Starbucks order and they just had this bond that they didn't have six months prior. And so I think that there's so many things that are difficult, but we can always find some joy and some hope in it. And so-
0: Well, and I wouldn't have had this opportunity. I mean, honestly, I knew nothing about Zoom, but, you know, being able to meet people like you across the country just brings me joy. You know, I wouldn't have been able to do it and I wouldn't be sitting in a closet recording these you know, if it wasn't for some of the technology. So like you said, a silver lining, right? Um, So, but here's to sunshine and hope. And, Uh you know, I think a lot of what you've been talking about really is about offering people hope and, and our kids. I mean, what's more important than our children? So again, thank you for what you're doing. It's really important. And your patients are very lucky to have you.
1: Well, thank you. And thank you for this and for um, allowing me to be here and for just constantly trying to improve what we all know and, you know, just building up our community across the the nation because we need to stick together. So
0: So guys, I hope that you are inspired to begin to think about implementing suicide-specific screening in your practices. I think Dustin really lays out a pretty comprehensive and convincing case that this is doable and really is essential. So here are my takeaways. Number one, Dustin's group started doing this suicide risk screening intentionally after his mentor, Dr. Ted Abernathy, attended a conference on using the Ask Suicide Screener and then actually invited Dr. Lisa Horowitz to train his staff. A seed was planted. Number two, the group committed to routine screening at well-child visits and then frequent use for chronic stomach aches, headaches, and frequent injuries, and really any time there was a concern. So especially if someone had behavioral health needs, med follow-ups, I think you kind of get the idea from the conversation that there are lots of places where this can be used he said something that was really important to me, and that was, it was not about the kids who would say, but about the kids who would not say. We just don't want to miss anybody. Number three, parents embrace the screening after a trial run, and now it's just part of what they do. Number four, in order to prepare for a the implementation, partners attended conferences or accessed other educational materials on suicide prevention, and then they educated the entire staff so that everybody had buy-in to doing this new process. Number five, one day a patient came in and the nurse just had a hunch something was wrong. She asked the primary care partner if it was okay to you know, inquire about suicidal thoughts in this patient and they okayed it. So she completed the ask with the patient. He was planning on taking his life later that day. After that, there was no question that screening for suicide was absolutely the right thing to do. The practice was changed forever. Number six, the practice created a leadership team with office champions to focus on integrating trauma-informed care and suicide prevention into the work that they do. And the staff loves being involved. And I think this is a really nice way to think about how to start a new process in your practice and, you know, just get together the folks who care about this stuff and start there. Number seven, because the practice is committed to not losing a single patient to suicide, partners step up to help out when one of them gets behind seeing a kid who really needs them. I think we all do this. I know my partners have, you know, we have each other's backs and knowing that this is a commitment to find these kids and help them. Everybody can help each other out. And last, number eight, I want you to, see the links that I listed in the show notes that includes Dr. Abernathy's TED Talk, links to the NIMH ASQ Toolkit, the Counseling Access to Lethal Means course, which I would really encourage you to listen to because it's awesome, and then a nice parent engagement video that I helped create with the University of Michigan MC3 Child Psychiatry Access Project. This is really a nice little cartoon about what happens in our heads when we know we're going to have a tough patient encounter because of the seriousness of the encounter, but how it looks on our end, but also on the patient's end and the parent's end. So I hope you'll take a look at that. As always, thank you so much. I hope that this series has been inspiring for you to begin to think about suicide prevention and risk screening. So. Take care, my friends, and I will look forward to seeing you back here, and we will begin a summer of episodes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.